You're listening to Top Lane to Duopoly, a podcast by independent-minded voters for independent-minded voters, where we take a deep dive into the systemic problems that have left so many voters feeling disenchanted or disenfranchised completely in the U.S. political process. We also explore what the duopoly means and the impact it has on competition and accountability in elections. We further examine the nonpartisan solutions to foster elections that are fairer, more competitive, and more accountable to voters. Elections, after all, should serve voters, not parties. I'm your host, Sean Griffiths, and on this episode of Toppling the Duopoly, we're looking at Unrepresented, a new award-winning documentary that reveals the driving force behind political corruption and the unprecedented reforms to restore a government that better serves the people. Joining me to talk about this documentary film is its director, Daniel Faulkner. Dan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and talk about the film. Awesome. And the way I like to start my interviews is to give listeners an opportunity to get to know the person I'm talking with a little bit more. Uh, So why don't you discuss a little bit uh, about your own background? I know you've worked on other projects before. You worked on Unrepresented and um, how you got involved and interested in directing this documentary. Sure. Well, my background as a documentary filmmaker consists of this and a previous project with the executive producer and writer, Andrew Rodney, and that was called The Force. It's a political history of Detroit, where we both come from. And, you know, Andrew found himself like very, very interested in the inner workings of politics. I think before me, you know, I was maybe more inclined to just grumble about how things didn't seem fair or something like that. And, um, and he was really curious about particularly our region in Detroit. It's just starkly divided the suburbs and the city that's improving over time. But when we were growing up and it was very, very acutely felt and we just didn't understand why. And, uh, and so as he started to look into the history of that, you find what a significant role policy has played. You know, certainly there are cultural reasons that people maybe feel differently about one another or something like that. But a big part of why there's mistrust and animosity is because it was decided when neighborhood lines were drawn that these people weren't going to be together and that certain areas were going to be divested in entirely and under-resourced. And so that now you have like an actual an actually disparate reality, whereas before it was maybe just a conceptual one, like now you've made it real. And anyway, I could go on about that for a while, but because I just have a lot of experience with it and feel strongly about it. And, and I know that the purpose of this is for me to actually give you some some insight in my background, not just quickly say, oh, I was happy to make the movie. But mm-hmm. that's where Andrew and I were coming from as far as just really discovering that policy can have a lot to do with what you see around you. and that a lot of the problems, the now generationally compounded problems that face our city of Detroit have to do with policy that was never well-intentioned in the first place, but then is very hard to turn around. And people will continue to fight for it just because now someone benefits from it being the way that it is. And um, there's typically some way to construe an argument about how dangerous or difficult it would be to change things and so forth. And these policies just go on and on. But so with that kind of background, being interested in movies that hopefully pull back the curtain, but at least just bring people into the fold in terms of talking rather than just describing issues themselves. And where do I fall on this or that political policy issue? uh, How is it that the policy comes about? 
and sticks around for so long and those kinds of things. Um, that's really what brought us to this, to a movie that deals largely in the dynamics of corruption. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, not just first understanding that term. And so you don't just dismiss it and say like, okay, I've heard that before. I get it. The government's corrupt. But like what that really means in terms of why it, it can't work, why even a well-meaning person who is, you know, means every single campaign promise they give you is going to find themselves hamstrung and isolated and having a difficult time nudging the system in, a, in the direction of representative governance. And uh, we knew that there was a story there, like a lot to say. And we were excited by the idea that it could hopefully be for everyone, not for everyone in the sense that it's a fairly, um, you know, in, information based documentary and that might not appeal to everybody, but at least as far as its perspective in let's just get the government working at all rather than get mired in particular issues that both parties are really good at making, uh, using to divide us at this point. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you were able to take your previous experience with that. You had mentioned the, the, the film you did about uh, political oppression and, and in Detroit and Detroit's longstanding history with that. But you, brought, you managed to bring together some of the, the more prominent figures that, that within the nonpartisan reform space, people that I've built a professional relationships with, people I consider colleagues, people I've, I've known for close to a decade now. When you were starting this, did you kind of already know the people that you wanted to reach out to? Like, did you know that, you you know, Lawrence Lessig was somebody that you were going to want to get or reach out to or that Josh Silver at Represent Us or or Nick Troiano at Unite America? Or is it kind of it, or was it kind of something that kind of just built over time as you were developing the project, as you were making it, uh, you you would be introduced to the new and new faces that could provide additional insight into uh, the topic that you were discussing? It was a bit of both. There are people you see in the film who we knew we wanted to talk to almost as soon as we'd conceived of the thing. And we were fortunate enough to make to secure them as an interview. You know, they were generous with their time. And then there are others who maybe we didn't know their name at the beginning of it um, or didn't see how neatly they could add something to it. Um, and we discovered that along the way or someone that we would interview would refer us to another person and that sort of thing. So it happened organically, but we definitely had some ideas at the outset. Going into it, you, you mentioned that, you know, based on your experience in Detroit and working on um, your your documentary there and being from there and being passionate about about the the, politi the political landscape in that area, um, that seemed to give you really a foundation for how to to move into a film like this that that talks about uh, political corruption. Um, but for you branching out into the national space, would would you say that during the process of it, there there was a some eye-opening moments for you personally in terms of just learning what uh, corruption in the U.S. political process actually means? Because like you said, there's a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, the government's corrupt. Um, you know, that's something that a lot of people will agree. But to the to the depth and just how deep-seated it is, that's what people may not realize. So were there any particular just baffling and eye moments for you through the process of making this film? Yeah, there were quite a few. And as you probably have observed from the film, you know, we touch on a lot of different subjects or maybe manifestations of corruption. Um, and so depending on, I could burrow down into any one of those and talk about a handful of particulars that were shocking to learn. But 
I think even just doing the research early on and getting the idea of when we talk about corruption, it's, it's very easy, or I'll say that I personally, I think, tended to just conflate that with bribery and felt like I knew what corruption was and that it meant people who were taking money in exchange for direct favors. And that we have this, that happens, that still goes on, and, but that's clearly a crime. And when you get caught, you go to jail for it. But there's a type of corruption in the sense that the government exists to service the will of the people. And maybe that's never going to work perfectly, but that's definitely its marching order. And when, if the thing is retooled in such a way that it now almost cannot perform that function, or that certain types of graft and illegal, like bribery type activities are now, you're able to engage in them and not be violating the law, then that's what we're talking about when we say corruption. It's the actual, the thing itself has been morphed in such a way that a lot of, a lot of uh, everyday business that most voters would just readily object to, you know, like the kind of the revolving door dynamic, for instance, between lobbying and, and work in Congress. Um, mm. Or like who's saying that they, where are the throngs of people trying to defend their right to raise money while in session? You know, like I just don't see it. You know what I mean? You know, there's those kinds of things where it's really easy to find consensus among the voters that were like, oh, well, yeah, you could just change that tomorrow. Nobody's, how'd that ever get like that? Or gerrymandering, you know, no one defends it. You know, they might have different ideas about what the solution is. Should it, you know, how, how to generate your nonpartisan district, but no one really thinks that regardless of which party's in charge, they should be able to just cement a permanent advantage for their party and, that kind of, and select who gets to vote for them and that kind of thing. No one feels that way. And, or, you know, the numbers are very, very small. And, um, and yet they're grossly overrepresented. And that's what we're talking about when we're saying corruption. How, and Lessig describes it well, too, with his money primary, you know, the idea that there is essentially a primary before the one that we get to participate in that consists strictly of money. It's, it's the top, say, half of a percent that are participating in that. And, and then to get back to specifics, that was the big awakening for me, I think, was that, so I'll answer your question, I guess, in two parts. That was the big awakening for me, was really realizing what we meant when we were talking about corruption and how fundamental to the operation of government it really is and that we're not just talking about, say, like bad actors and maybe they're more prevalent now than they used to be or something. But no, you're talking about um, why it is that any, you can have, the public can support a measure, 90% of the public can want something, and nevertheless, by the time it comes out of Congress, if passed, it'll be a thousand pages, and most of them written by, not by Congress or their staff, but in fact by a lobbyist. And that lobbyist will be directly representing the interests of the segments of the economy that are about to be regulated by said bill. And uh, none of us asked for it to be that way. It's not that business or anyone affected shouldn't have a seat at the table and so forth. It's just, why are they writing the legislation? These kinds of things. Like that was the big awakening for me was realizing, like you say, how in terms of depth, what we're talking about when we say corruption and uh, how it may not be readily fixable, but how readily you can get everyone on board with the idea that it ought not to be that way, regardless of their political or so-called political affiliation. Um, but then as far as a few specifics, it, it was things like seeing how it was the revolving door was a big one for sure. And the, the, the idea that members of Congress do in fact see it as a stepping stone, that may not be prevalent, but if for it to happen at all, as opposed to once upon a time, you never would have conceived of that. For there to be 
you know, even 1% of members who go off there thinking, okay, I'll serve for four to six years and then I could probably get a really good job at one of those firms and trade on my access because the people who are currently in Congress will be my old colleagues. I can get them on the phone anytime and I can sell that. Like, that is nuts. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I just didn't realize it was like that. And then hearing how what gets debated on the House floor will oftentimes be dictated by what has utility to the parties for raising money. So uh, Professor Lessig has a good anecdote in one of his books about these credit card swipe fees where it just really doesn't matter too much to the voters at home, but there are deep-pocketed parties on both sides, the credit cards who don't want them to be, who want them to be assessed constantly, I think, and the union of vendors who don't want them to be assessed or something like that was the issue. And so simply by debating the legislation, which way do we want to come down on this, taking it up, money starts raining in on both sides. And so it's a useful fundraising tool for them just to take up these issues. And so now you see that's an insidious way that it's affecting, you know, maybe, maybe we the people aren't being terribly harmed by that. It's just a matter of like, where's the, the agenda on the House floor is being affected by what can help these parties raise money, which they have to constantly do because of this endless election cycle and those sorts of things. And so I don't know how, how precisely I've answered your question versus, you know, just sort of talking about what it made me think about, but hopefully, uh, it, it no, was a little no, open-ended. No, that was that. great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, you're, yeah, the documentary covers of this topic very broadly. In fact, you, you, uh, you have, uh, individuals like former U.S. Rep. Justin Amash talking about how members of Congress have to raise a certain amount of money just to get committee positions. So they have to pay right. for their committee spots. That is perfectly legal, although a lot, I think a lot of voters, w when they hear that, and they may not think about that a lot, they may not know that, but that has got to be outrageous um, just to think about these things. And then um, you, you, you did bring on a lot of people within the reform space, whether it is to fix the issue of corruption or whether it's to fix uh, a rigged political and electoral process through a variety of, of different means. Going in, were there any reforms? You, you had said you kind of had a kind of a, a fundamental knowledge, basic knowledge of what corruption looked like and all that. So there might have been some reforms that on the surface you might have supported going into doing this. Are there any reforms that were discussed in the course of the film that you believe personally that we should address in terms of, or focus on in terms of the issue of corruption within the U.S. political process or, and or that, that listeners that can be emphasized for, for listeners of this podcast uh, in terms of what would be important for us to adopt? Right. Well, there are a lot of measures that would make things better. Um, I'm not sure that I'm the one to look to for the best top-down strategy to turn it around, but it's, my own leanings are to, first of all, as a practical matter, it's useful to pay attention to what's going on where you live. So if there's any, for instance, if I think, whether I think that significant campaign finance reform or a balanced budget or significant reform in the area of lobbying or any of those might be the best solution for us to take down. If in your city or state, there's a measure going on to combat gerrymandering or to expand vote by mail or something like that, then you should get behind that. You know, anything that's going on or has momentum, you take down the winds where you can um, insofar as they actually seem tied to making government 
function better for everyone or simply giving a greater share of us access. Hopefully we'll get to total share of us one day. And um, so that's where I start is I, I take a look at what's going on or efforts like Voters Not Politicians in Michigan. You know, if you've got something like that in your state or whatever it is, um, certainly look into it. Ranked choice voting is undeniably having a moment right now. And so that need not be the end-all be-all solution, but it will help, I think. And so go ahead and get behind that if there's, again, a momentum with legs where you live. Um, but with that said, I really look to campaign finance and, and to the revolving door policies because I think that has a lot to do with perverting the incentives for members who serve. And I think that the budget is fundamental, not so much because I'm worried about runaway inflation, but just because it is impossible to, for our budget to ever become a reflection of our values without some sort of meaningful constraint. And, you know, as we talk in the film about the idea of something like the Iraq war, if we had to either cut spending, you know, reduce spending on popular programs or increase taxes significantly to have paid for that as we went along, it might not have happened. And so I just think that that's the value in tying some kind of budgetary constraint into the reforms that we talk about. It's way less an inflationary concern for me, although I'll leave it to others to make that argument, and it's represented in the film because we encountered it a lot. But I see the political problem of where they are, in fact, incentivized to as McGinnis talks about, Maya McGinnis, you know, there's, there's no incentive to even check on a program that maybe we all agree is a good idea. Like that, there should be spending on that. But okay, is it working? Is it getting the, the intended result? There's no incentive to ever ask those questions right now. Who gains politically from that? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I see if we want government to work better overall, I also think when you look at something like um, graft, you know, companies paying 0% interest rates or tax rates, rather, pardon, tax rates, that kind of thing. Um, I, that will always go on some form of there will always be some amount of graft and corruption going on, but it's just going to, it'll, it'll necessarily contract if the budget is actually on book and because that's going to be some of the hardest stuff to defend, you know, like it'll actually, it, whereas now it's like if you, as long as there are tax cuts for the public in that very same tax bill that gives a gift to this corporation or that corporation, it, it'll pass. And um, so I think, the budgetary process would help get us back to regular order as well, where it won't just be a matter of this false debate of do we, can, do we default on everything or do we pass this huge bill that greenlights all the spending for the whole year rather than a real budgetary process. So that's another part of why we talk about it in the film and why I think it's important. It's less just a debt concern and more about how fundamental it should be to the function of government. And I think it has wrongly been made a partisan issue. There's no reason why people, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum you should be concerned with it mm-hmm. and i'm glad you brought so I tie up, that uh, in there yeah I, i'm glad you brought up uh incentives and I, about this being about incentives on the show we we are on this podcast we talk a lot about um vote, voter rights and in terms in relation to how how meaningful a person's vote is and part of that is well how accountable are public officials to uh the voters and so when we look at things like gerrymandering, we look at, you know, how millions of voters are left voiceless as a result of it. Things like party primaries, mm-hmm. where a significant portion of the electorate are left out. Uh, reforms like that, because at the end of the day, if we do, 
at the end of the day, if you really think about it, the issue of uh, corruption, as you discuss in the film, is also an issue of voter rights and voter suppression because these lobbyists have an outsized influence on policy. And what ends up what ends up happening is that special interest lobbyists, uh, party interest, you know, th- they have more of a say in what goes on in halls of Congress and and with with public officials than voters. So uh, it's a very important, I think, for voters to understand uh, where the incentives are and uh, at the foundation. So I, I think nonpartisan reformers are starting to focus the conversation more on that incentives um, aspect of the conversation because it is really important. Now I've I've seen some of the uh, the, the the reviews and 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 some of the responses they've gotten on this documentary, and they're all broadly positive. Not even just from reformers, but from former members of Congress. I've seen praise this. Talk a little bit about your own experience, your own experiences in receiving feedback on this film, and and some of and some of the acclaim it has has gotten since you released it. Sure, um, it's been a very positive experience for us, of course, too have the film make an impact with any group that feels that they can use it to talk to their members or any, and of course with any individual who feels like it's worth showing to their friends or family or whomever, whether to just simply as a starting point to talk about issues and maybe what they're doing if they're involved or just because they weren't aware of it at all, more like me at the outset. And in seeing this, they feel like they have a good access point now for beginning to even ask yourself, like, okay, well, I know I'm not just going to run out and be in every march, every protest, like, give my life fully, to, but I need to do more than nothing. Like, how do I get involved? And which one of these groups can I plug in with? What do I want to start paying more attention to? Um, do I want to shift even the issues that I say are important to me when I talk about candidates and the political conversations that invariably come up with people? toward these kinds of measures, like how much does that, not just what they feel about immigration or gun safety or something like that, but does this candidate talk at all about the fact that our government's largely dysfunctional and what they think they'd like to do about it? And are they talking about 10 and 20 year solutions that seem realistic as opposed to just promising me that they'll do everything in four years like candidates tend to do? And um, so, you know, anyone who thinks that the film is useful in serving some of those goals. It's been tremendously positive to me, or, or affirming, I should say, in the work. And, and that's probably the best way I can answer that. You know, as far on an individual basis, sure, any particular sentence or two makes me feel really good. And uh, yeah. some people, of course, right, it's, it's, it assumes a certain level of familiarity with the political climate in America, I think, to start off with. So if you don't have a bit of a political interest, or um, it might be hard to connect with in the first place, you know, but mm-hmm. I think so maybe it's a self-selecting group or something that we have there for, but it, I've found it, as you say, to be largely positive. And I think the reason, there are a few reasons. And I think a big one is that we really try to focus on this issue of dysfunction um, and, and how it can be attacked rather than assigning blame. You know, I mean, there's, plenty of time spent on describing the harm and why it isn't working in the outset, but we don't spend much time trying to assign blame. We're just, once we've established the harm for you and feel that we've given you every reason to want to see it fixed, we pivot to the people who are working on doing that. 
And the the film, the documentary film, has been uh, featured in uh, uh, large film festivals. It's also been uh, featured in virtual screening events. Um, but coming soon, it is there's going to be a rollout in which uh, Unrepresented is going to air on uh, public uh, television stations in cities across the country. Can you give listeners a preview of what that rollout is going to look at look like and what all what what cities are going to be included in that rollout? Sure. Well, the best way to stay ahead of when it might get to your city is to follow us on the various social media platforms, particularly Facebook and Twitter, um, and to visit our website as often as you like. We've got information there about when new cities are added, just because it is really changing. I mean, I can tell you personally, I'm getting emails from the impact producer every day or two about new cities being added. So that, that's the main reason that I say that. Um, I know for sure that we've got it rolling out in the Los Angeles market in just a few days here. And DC, you know, New York and Nashville, they're quite a few big markets. But as far as when, so far they're clumped toward the end of this month. And mm -hmm. I think that the, we'll see more added in April, but there are about you know, maybe a dozen or so in April right now. So I would say the concise answer to your question is between March and April, you'll see it on your PBS listing at some point. But since we don't know what your air date will be, it's sort of up to each individual station in their market to program it as they see fit. Um, that's why we think that our social platforms and our website are very helpful in connecting you with it particularly because I'm naturally you're going to want to invite like 20 people over if you've all vaccinated or at least like space it out in the house you know make a real big event around it of course and so I just want to give people as much notice as they can have of course and what <laughs> uh, what's the domain of the website that people can go to or the or the social accounts that listeners can go to if they want more information on the film itself and when it might air in their own area. Sure, thank you. If you search Unrepresented on Twitter or Facebook, you'll probably get to us. Our website is the same, weareunrepresented.com, and so I recommend either of those. It's a little confusing once I start spelling the handle, so I won't bother. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, I uh, I appreciate you joining me. Um, I know I, I've only been able to see preview content of it so far. I haven't had the the opportunity to uh, to check out a screening just yet. But I look forward to either checking out a screening event or when it comes to PBS in my own market. Uh, this is an important topic, and the the documentary covers a lot of important issues and goes in depth on those issues. I encourage everyone to look more into it and look at when and and how you can watch it um, in your own area. A lot of these mm -hmm. things, they will. They'll blow your mind. So, Dan, I thank you again for joining me on Toppling the Duopoly. Yeah, happy to be here. Really appreciate you and your listeners. Uh, I definitely think this will be up their alley. And thank you for encouraging me to get out there and check it out. If you like this episode or found it informative and are interested in hearing more content like it, be sure to leave a review where possible and like or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay independent.